Welcome to Making Moves, a podcast presented by Skate Like a Girl and the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. Today's episode focuses on the future of sports and social justice, featuring an interview with Professor of Kinesiology, Rita Liberti, led by the Executive Director of Skate Like a Girl, Kristen Ebling. This is McKenna Duda, your host. I'm a Cal State East Bay alum, former collegiate, now recreational runner, and I just recently earned my bachelor's degree in kinesiology. Here, we'd like to serve our audience by educating and also inspiring y'all to feel empowered through sport, social justice, and skateboarding. All athletes, skateboarders, and fans of sport and social justice are welcome. I'd like to take this moment to be mindful. In today's society, it is so easy to just sit down for the vast majority of our days, neglecting a fundamental aspect of life, movement. I encourage y'all to get up and move, crawl, walk, jump, somersault, do that handstand. All of these are ways to move beyond focusing on muscle engagement. Take a moment to reflect and think about this quote, exercise is optional, movement is essential. Beyond striving for a professional career in a sport, sport can be used as a vessel to promote inclusivity. Potential barriers to this include stigmas, accessibility, insensitivity to trauma, the list goes on. Because our youth are our future, we must further address how to connect beyond the physical barriers within modern day sports. What's up, skaters, sports, and social justice fans? This is your friend Kristen Ebling here. I use she and her pronouns, and I am proud to be the executive director of an organization called Skate Like a Girl. I'm reporting live from Seattle, Washington, and I'm super excited to chat today with uh, Rita Liberti. Um, She is a professor uh, in the Department of Kinesiology at Cal State University, East Bay. Her research centers on 20th century women's sport. Specifically, she's interested in sport for female students at historically black colleges and universities in the 1930s. She has a bachelor's of science in health and physical education from Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. She also has a master's in education in athletic administration from the Slippery Rock University of Pennsylvania. Lastly, she earned her PhD in sports studies from the University of Iowa. Wow. What a resume. Um, Quite amazing. So Rita, uh, where are you joining us from today? Actually, uh, I'm in Syracuse, New York. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) It's sunny in Seattle. So whenever that happens, it's like, (laughs) I gotta just, I gotta just be hyped and just bask in it. How's the weather out there? You know, it's a spring day. It's rainy and a little cold, but that's okay. It's okay. Nice. Not mad at it. That's why it's, that's why my mom says uh, Seattle's so green. All the rain, so hopefully it's good out there. Um, Cool. So first uh, real question here. Um, What is one sport you're not good at and wish that you were good at and why? Uh, Boy, I absolutely suck. Am I allowed to say that? Suck. I I stink at uh, golf and swimming. Um, I don't think I care much about golf, so I don't care that I'm bad at it. But swimming, I always... uh, yeah, I wish I, I, when I watch people who are good swimmers, I think, wow, that's incredible. I wish I could do that. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause yeah, I feel like golf is one of those sports similar to skating where it's like totally normal to suck completely and you yeah. s- people still do it. And yeah, yeah it's kind of just walking around and you can have a beer or whatever. And yeah. <laughs> it's really frustrating. Um, uh, but swimming. Yeah. I also wish I was better at swimming. I've been trying to get good at surfing and yeah. surfing or like swimming is like a sport, but it's also like such a useful skill, like not drowning mm-hmm. is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I feel you on that. I wish I was yeah. better at both of those two. You know, <laughs> the, the one sport that I absolutely love and I wish, you know, when I was growing up in the seventies, I wish it was more available for girls than was soccer. I mean, mm. I, I never got to play competitive, organized soccer. And I think, my, you know, my dad was a soccer player, but girls never played. Not in, not in the East, at least. So yeah. when, I, when I watch girls and women play that game today, I think, wow, that looks like a great sport to learn, you know? So. Yeah, that's so fascinating because for me, uh, growing up as a kid in the mid to late nineties, like soccer was the sport that girls played. It was like the socially accepted sport. And maybe that had something to do with the, you know, Mia Hamm and I don't know that legendary Olympic team. Um, you know, but, yeah. uh, yeah, like, I don't know for me, I was like, Oh, like Mia Hamm was like one of the only athlete, female athletes that I knew growing up. I obviously I knew who like Michael Jordan was, but like, as far as like household names for like women athletes, like Mia Hamm was really the only one. And now obviously there's like Megan Rapinoe and all these other amazing um, yeah. soccer players. But that's so fascinating that soccer was like something that was not yeah. um, something you saw women doing never when you were a kid. Never. Uh, I can't, I can't think of a time actually when, uh, when I saw uh, adult women playing the game either, either on television or live, you know, in person. So, well, yeah, I mean, really, really fun. goes to show, doesn't it? That like, uh, you see role models out there and you really feel like you can emulate them. Like you have something to just match up to like, Oh yeah. 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 I think it was, maybe it was Brandy Chastain on that same team. She like whipped her shirt off at a game. And I was like, that is so cool. And like my next soccer game, I totally like, <laughs> after I scored a goal, I totally ripped my shirt off. Cause I just wanted to be cool. Like her. Um, <laughs> that's so true. Um, <laughs> so, uh, next question here, in your opinion, how can kinesiology impact social issues in society? Yeah, I don't, uh, maybe some of your folks out there listening uh, don't know much about kinesiology, others probably do, but it's really kind of unique as a field of study, you know, it's a study of human movement. And what's really cool about kinesiology is we study it from all these different perspectives. So like, I study it mainly from a historical perspective. Some people do it from like sociology, uh, culture, you know, Uh, some people do like behavioral, like sports psych. And then you got the sciences, like biomechanics and ex-phys. I don't even know what those people do basically. Um, But that's really kind of neat because it gives you all these different ways of thinking about human movement. And most other fields of study don't do it like that. It's pretty narrow. And uh, so I think it just like invites um, engaging questions about social justice. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, I I guess uh, maybe for our folks that aren't you know, studying at, you know, CSU East Bay and uh, maybe don't know much about that. Do you want to give like a, like, if, let's say we're in an elevator, right? And you got about 30 seconds to explain to me what kinesiology is. What, how would you, how would you wow. run it down? Damn, I'd cool. stop that. I hit the elevator button so that it would stop, first of all, because I need longer than 30 seconds. Um, okay, I'll give you a minute. I'll give you a minute. Okay, right. 
it's a long elevator up to our penthouse rooftop party okay okay go okay so it is it is studying human movement right so how humans move and that can be in sport that can just be in physical activity recreation leisure um and we look at it through all these different ways some people study like get in the lab and study you know different ways that people move the biologically, physiologically, what happens to the body when you exercise, for example. And then there's people like me that love to look at like women's history in sport and human movement. So all these different really ways of approaching the same big question, human movement, you know, why we move, how we move, stuff like that. Fascinating. That's really cool that it can get taken in so many different ways, like the historical context, but then also like more biological Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. Um, sure. This is a great elevator ride. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, my, my homie, I'll, I'll call her my homie um, over at C- CSU East Bay, East Bay, uh, Becky Beal, a writer, uh, professor, awesome human. Y'all co-founded um, the center for sports and social justice together. Do you want to tell the people what that is all about and maybe the impetus behind uh, founding um yeah. Center for Sports and Social Justice. So uh, I got to East Bay, which was then Hayward in 1998. And I was pretty much on my own. There was no, I mean, there were lots of other faculty, but nobody studied movement, human movement from like a historical or sociological or cultural perspective, you know? And so we hired Beale in I think 2008. And one day she said, you know, there's two of us here studying the same kind of stuff we got some energy back and forth. Maybe we can collaborate with people across the campus too who study sport. Why don't we try to set up a center? We, we really, to be honest, didn't know what we were talking about at the very beginning, but we knew that there was something there, something really yeah. that could be cool for both the campus, but also for the community too. And um, so we sort of did the logistics and all the paperwork to get a center started, which I gotta say was like, wow, that was intense. Um, but then, but then soon after, you know, we hired a couple of other faculty, Matt Atencio, Missy Wright, and we realized we had like a team. We had a team of people who do, who study sport and culture and, uh, it just took off from there really. So it's been, it's been what, about a decade now, really. Nice. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, has there been any like super proud moments like in, you know, that 10 years that maybe like a, give, give us the highlight reel. Wow. There's a lot of them. Um, uh, shoot. I think that our first event, our first big public lecture was when Dave Zirin came in 2012, 2012. It was right when Lynn Sanity was happening it was that same week. Mm. And we had, um, we had 400 people in the audience at East Bay. You don't generally get crowds like that for public talks. And uh, it was at night. Uh, 400 people. Dave was great. Um, He just was captivating. People were on their feet. I mean, it was, wow. It was was cool. Awesome. And I'm not familiar with this Dave person. Can you enlighten me on his epicness? Dave Zirin is this radical sport journalist um, who uh, writes for the nation, but he also has a cool podcast. Um, And he, he's just a, he's just smart. You know, he's smart and he's, he's, he's just a cool guy uh, who loves to talk about sport and culture. And for those of you who haven't ever heard of him, check him out because he's good. 
I will. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's rad. Um, so next question here is, um, how do you feel that CSU EB uniquely weaves social justice into kinesiology and the, the department and like the curriculum on campus? Well, I think uh, there aren't there aren't many like us probably in the United States, maybe across the world. I don't know, in the United States for sure, because, you know, in, in our major kinesiology, students have a core, right? They have, every student has to take every one of those classes in the core. Well, at East Bay, two of them really are related to social justice. Um, social justice and kinesiology is one course. And then a course that I teach, which is called Critical Issues in the Body, which, um, I think is a really cool course about how we attach meaning to our bodies when we're moving um, or how others attach meaning to us. So when people see a girl skateboarding, what do they think of that girl's body when she's doing it? Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that those are two courses that are in our curriculum that are required for our students to take that. That's unusual in a kinesiology department. Wow. Okay. So what you're saying is like you were able to sort of influence the kinesiology department at CSUEB to make it a requirement for folks in the program to take at least two of those courses related to social justice. Yeah. And um, wow. it's two of, I think, I don't know how many courses are required, maybe eight or nine. So that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty good. It's pretty good. And, you know, and not that the other courses in the core don't talk about social justice because they might. But, mm -hmm. but these two courses are specifically about that. And that really comes from the Center for Sport and Social Justice. I mean, the two things work together, you know? Um, so that's been kind of, that's been cool. And that, that happens because of all these great faculty we have. Nice. And how many faculty do you have like that are part of like that program? It sounded like, like five or six people or? Oh yeah, the full-timers now, uh, full-time tenured faculty, four of us. Is that wow. right? Gosh, we have so many, I lose track. Um, and, <laughs> and then we've got a bunch of really great part-time um, lecturers who, who are incredible. I mean, there are probably, shoot, maybe 10 or 12 of those who are teaching across a curriculum that includes not just the two classes I mentioned, but a bunch of other classes that elective students can take as electives. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I feel like I know the answer to this next question, but you know, we'll go for it. Okay. Why do you, or why do you feel that social justice and sport can and or should be tied to each other? Yeah. You know, some people, when we first put the center together, we got, we got these like people scratching their heads. I'm like, what are you talking about? Sport and social justice. You know, I mean, today people, I think don't, maybe wouldn't be as confused, but even, yeah. yeah right. With all the athletic yeah. stuff going on. Um, well, and I would say like with like, I don't know, Megan Rapinoe comes to mind, but also like Colin Kaepernick, like there's a lot of people speaking out on social issues generally, like that's way more normal, even like LeBron James, things like that. You know, maybe that's just a new phenomenon, but obviously there's always been these issues forever, but yeah, people are speaking on it now. Yeah. And I think the athletes are much more visible and uh, there's so many more of them speaking out. And so, uh, like you said, they've always been doing it. But now it's just so much more prominent given their sheer numbers and their power in society, right? So in that way, there's always been this connection for us. Um, and having these athletes speak out now has sort of made our job a little easier. At least, at least we don't have to spend the first 10 minutes of all these conversations explaining to people that there's a connection, you know? Now, now people get 
that sport and politics, whatever politics, whether it's yeah. race, whatever it is, they're connected. And yeah. Yeah, totally. I guess I was curious. Uh, we talked about it sort of on like a high, high level, more sports celebrity perspective, but like just in my work doing grant writing for skate, like a girl, I've, you know, done a lot of research on like inequity in sport in general. And not only that, like sports are really powerful for young people, but a particular type of bodies are more included and others are more excluded when it comes to the benefits of sports. So I don't know if you've ever like done any like research or anything on that. I would just be curious to know, like just about sport inequities and things like that. Yeah. I mean, well, my, my dissertation research, which goes back a few years, but I've kind of stayed with it a little bit. And that's on um, basketball at historically black colleges uh, nearly a hundred years ago now. And boy, if you want to talk about inequity, um, you know, which, which makes the fact that these schools sponsored women's basketball so important because the schools were treated so unfairly. I mean, they existed in the first place because black students couldn't enter white schools, right? Right, um, yeah. <laughs> and so they start these basketball programs and they're phenomenal. I mean, and uh, so, yeah, so a lot of the work that I do is, is all around looking at, is around like how these communities that are treated so unjustly create space for themselves in sport. Mm. Like, yeah, there's, they, those women fought racism and sexism every day and yet their institutions and they themselves thought, thought like basketball in particular was a way to fight injustice. Mm. So that's sort of what it's all about, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that more in a modern context, I think as well with like pay inequity, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, women's soccer players have been speaking on that. And then recently with like the NCAA, like basketball tournaments and the, you know, the ways in which the uh, the weight rooms and the prize packs and all that look very different if you're a, a woman athlete or a, a male athlete. So yeah, and yeah, I think, very relevant and still to today. Today, and it's and it's you know there have been those voices constantly over time throughout history. But as you said, it's like there's this environment right now. Not not that everybody welcomes it, but it's much more it's much more welcome to have a young woman say we're getting treated bad here and it's not cool. You know, it's not the way we should be doing business. And so and not that we need people like Steph Curry. It's not that women need Steph Curry to, to like pat them on the back, but it is kind of cool when a, when a prominent male athlete steps up and say, you're right, this isn't right. Fix it. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, they don't, as I said, women don't necessarily need those voices, but hell take them. Yeah. We'll take yeah. it. <laughs> not mad at it. Yeah, okay. definitely. Um, so my next question is, can athletes uh, use their platform to address social issues? And what about like non-professional athletes? Yeah, it's kind of so just kind of speaking on that. But yeah. Yeah, it's tricky for both, I think, amateur and professional. I mean, as I said, you know, I grew up in the in the 70s, right at the tail end of when athletes were speaking out, like John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Uh, raising their fists on the platform in 1968 to protest and inju racial injustice in Mexico city at the Olympics, right. uh, Billie Jean King pay equity yep. in tennis. Uh, you know, so she, yep. that was, and then, we, and then we got into the eighties and gosh, athletes just seemed to go silent. Like 
there was, mm. whether they were professional or amateur, they, they just weren't speaking out. I think about Michael Jordan, who had every opportunity to speak out, but never did. I hate to, you know, yeah. hate to like paint him in a bad light, but maybe some of it's deserving. Um, and, and I thought, wow, will athletes ever speak out again? But then now the last 10 years, it's been, it's been this revolution and not that athletes haven't paid. Cause I think some of them have picked Kaepernick obviously paid dearly. Right. Um, yeah. And others have too. And whether they're amateur or professional, the threat of losing a scholarship or losing your place on a team or um, right. as, as a professional, losing endorsements, uh, losing your friends. I mean, so lots of risk involved, mm -hmm. but, but I'm, I'm hopeful. I think that as we see more and more of it, people realize that these athletes are on the right side of history and, um, Align, yeah. you know, like aligning yourself with them is the place you want to be. Yeah. I've seen a lot of brands figure that one out <laughs> in the last, uh, couple, uh, yeah. years I'd say, but and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shocking really for me. I never expected to see it again. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think, I mean, going back to Kaepernick, it seems like that was, I don't know if you see that as being like a turning point, but the things that, you know, people were saying about his actions, you know, what was it like five years ago or eight years? I don't even know. It five years right? ago or something like, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then now seeing like Osaka Naomi, like rocking a mask that says like Brianna Taylor on it, you know, and um, basketball players wearing shirts to say, I can't breathe and things like yeah. that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to see the conversation change and um, the cultural interpretation of that. I think that's really powerful. And, I think what's cool about athletes is like, there is a lot of dialogue around like, just shut up and play, put your head down. Like you're just supposed to play where you're entertaining us. And I think it's really badass that athletes are like, nah, like we have something to say, we're human beings and we're going to speak on it. And guess what? We have these huge platforms now through social media and you know, it's, there's less gatekeeping as far as what athletes can say. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an exciting time. I don't know if you're excited about it, but it seems oh, like it's, totally it's beautiful. Yeah. And I think when we look back on it, when we look back on this history, I think Kaepernick will kind of be a, a watershed moment, you know, but what I hope happens is that the attention he's due doesn't, doesn't mean we ignore or forget about the hundreds or thousands of other lesser known athletes who, who put their neck on the line. You know, they, they risk a lot of stuff. Um, to make this moment happen. I mean, nothing happens just by one with one person, right? He did a lot. Kaepernick did a lot, but it's not just one person that creates social change. Yeah. It's always a social movement straight up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, what do you feel like, I mean, you sort of described this a little bit, but um, I guess it wouldn't hurt to talk a little more about it, but what do you think um, speaking out with like modern society, like how do you feel like it's maybe more difficult now or less difficult than say like some of those athletes you mentioned earlier, like Billie Jean King? Yeah. I mean, I think at times have just changed. Like, it's almost, it's hard when you're living in the change to realize how much things have changed. But like, like I think about even, um, like issues related to, at least for women, I can't, on the men's side, it's a little different, but at least for women, issues of like um, queer athletes in sport, homophobia in sport. I mean, I think about Billie Jean King getting outed in the early 1980s and her career falling apart. I mean, she lost everything in that moment. And, right. wow. 
And the same thing, I mean, she was a, now she wasn't at the top of her game then, but she was, it was pretty soon after she was the best player in the world. And, and I, now I think that even though there are, again, risks to, to being outed or to coming out, um, I think that it, it's, it's less of a, obviously it's, the cultural surround about being queer is different now. And so it doesn't come with the same stuff that it did even 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, for men, I'm not so sure. Uh, but for women, I think it's a little less hostile, you know? Um, so, and I think that's just a reflection of how quickly stuff changed. Um, yeah. how atti attitude, and how sport was often at the front of that change, um, pushing for change, you know, women in sports saying, yeah, so what? I'm a lesbian. Get over it. Like what, what's a big deal, you know? Um, yeah. You want us to win the championship or? <laughs> right, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, it's interesting, kind of coming from like a skateboarding perspective, like there was kind of a watershed mo shed moment like a couple years ago when Brian Anderson mm -hmm. came out because there was a lot of out like women skaters and being a woman skater, knowing the majority of women that, you know, I skate with were like queer identified. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just, that hadn't happened in like men's skateboarding, you know? And now there's so many more out like male mm -hmm. um, gay skaters, queer skaters, and it's, it's really beautiful. Um, yeah. And the, you know, slowly seeing the skate industry change and, and be more reflective and, and less homophobic. There's still so much work to do, but yeah, yeah and, definitely. And, and what beautiful. it means, what it means to young people that, you know, aren't, you know, aren't the center of attention necessarily. They're not have a huge platform, but they're struggling with their own stuff and they see someone who's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's revolutionary. I mean, I yeah. think just, it just sparks even greater change, you know? Um, yeah. I actually was skating with a guy. I just randomly remember this. I was skating with a guy maybe a week ago and at the spot and I was like asking how he knew my friend Chandler. And he was like, Oh, like, you know, I skated as a kid and then I came out and I just didn't think you could be gay and skateboard like as a dude. But then I saw Chandler skating and I realized like, oh, I could totally do that. And then he had just hit up Chandler randomly on the Internet. And then Chandler's just like, yeah, you can come skate with me. Like, no problem. And yeah. now they're like homies and skate together. And like, yeah, it's so skateboarding is different in that perspective. Like I couldn't just, you know, pick up the phone and call a professional basketball player or something like that. But right. in skateboarding, like uh, you're a little bit more connected to folks. And yeah, it's just it's cool to see the community grow and so many more people just be um, be themselves, authentically themselves. Elves. and uh yeah it's it's rad that people do that through sports yeah like yeah, like, yeah I, it's beautiful. I remember even just a few years ago um listening to we actually we had her on campus uh Lashia Clarendon who's a WNBA player you know she's been so outspoken these this last decade and uh you know she she talks often about the struggles of sort of you know as a, as a woman of color as a queer woman uh, it just sort of this process of coming out and yet she also knows like the power in it too not just not just like for her personally but what it means to others who are who are, who are watching her you know uh, her radicalness all over the place you know and uh yeah and plus she's a phenomenal athlete so it's all one package <laughs> yeah I'm like I'm always curious about that because it's not that like any human being is above another, but it is pretty amazing when you see somebody that you didn't think or from an identity that's underrepresented and they're just crushing it 
You know, like, I think maybe that's like what the X factor is with sports is that it's like not just about people speaking up on stuff, but it's about like being an incredibly talented athlete provides this like, uh, cool factor. And I don't know this, like people just want to pay attention to you and they're inspired by you. And then when you speak on something, it's like, I don't know, that kind of creates this Mm -hmm. awesome power. (laughs) It's beautiful. I, I, I think it's, I think it works on two levels, right? One, it's good for the people who are also share the identity to see kind of a, some, a role model almost, you know, but it's also good for people who aren't of the identity. So it's good for, you know, cis people, people who aren't queer, like to see, to see others in the sport or others in the activity, like, oh, it's not just for this group. Oh, it's not, oh, and this is another way of being human. I see, I get it, you know? Like, I, I just think it, it just expands all of our ways of being. And that's, I don't think there's anything more powerful than that. And if sport can help do that, cool. I mean. Right on. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so what do you think the overall like importance is of having these types of conversations in your opinion? And maybe you can bring in like any type of, I know you have a strong like historical perspective, but like, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I think it's, you know, in, in, in my women's sport history class, we talk a lot about, and I, sometimes I think the students get, I mean, it's a history class. So, you know, we're going to talk about the past, right? But the number of times the students are able to say, wow, that thing that happened a hundred years ago really reminds me of what's going on right now. Or I see what's going on right now a little differently because of what I learned happened a hundred years ago. Like things are the same or things are different and that helps people understand the present. And that's why I wish we were a little bit more as a society, not, not you know, you and me, but um, a little bit more like attentive, mindful, like the past matters. And I know, you know, people don't like to often get stuck in it, but um, it's, it's important to, to know that there are people before Colin Kaepernick and people before, like, that, that they, they really changed the game. Um, and I think knowing that helps us understand today, modern, you know, modern society. And, and, and I, I don't think there's, as a historian, I don't think there's anything better than that. Um, there's something really exciting when you like, when you read a story about someone, a, an athlete who agitated for change in the past, and then you see a person doing it today. And, and yeah, they're, sometimes they're getting met with the same sort of issues, you know, but you, but you also see how that person in the past maneuvered, navigated, made it work. And you think, wow, maybe I can help the person in the present make it work. You know, if we could only just look to the past as an example. Um, yeah. I'm curious to, uh, is there any like particular like thread that you could maybe share just to get specific? Like, is there an athlete in the past that like, maybe you could see reflected in something happening in modern times that you could just share with us? I just think that would be so special. Yeah. So, um, a couple, one thing comes to mind, maybe cause we wrote a book on it. Um, uh, Maureen Smith and I wrote a book on Wilma Rudolph. I don't, do you know Wilma Rudolph? Can't say I do. Yeah, okay. That's okay. Um, well, she wanted- about to uh, learn though. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, Google, gotta Google her. All right, um, all right, all right. She won, she won three gold medals uh, at the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome. And she's mostly, when you Google her, that's what's going to come up, right? But what people don't know is that Wilma Rudolph also was an incredible resistor. 
um, she uh, there was she she grew up in in, in Tennessee, uh, Clarksville, Nashville, and this was in 1960. So it's segregated South. I mean, it's, things aren't good for blacks in the American South, especially for black women, right? And so Rudolph comes back from these Rome games. She's a, she's a hero around the world. I mean, she's, she's a star athlete. I mean, she's a star athlete. And it turns out that her hometown of Clarksville, Tennessee wasn't integrated. If Wilma Rudolph wanted to walk into a local diner and get a burger at the counter, she probably couldn't, even though she was this Olympic athlete. So in 1963, she, along with a bunch of other African-Americans, begin to protest the segregation. And of course, Wilma Rudolph is at the front. And so the newspapers start to pick up on this, like, hey, Wilma Rudolph is, is out in front, man. She's pushing for chip. Like, she, she risked a ton to do that. I mean, she, there, were, there were points that actually got pretty violent. So she was risking her life to be there those nights, protesting, trying to get into these restaurants in her hometown. But by the fourth or fifth night, city officials said, okay, enough. And I think a part of it wasn't, they felt bad that they were excluding African-Americans. They felt bad because their town was getting so much bad press because Wilma Rudolph <laughs> was attracting the public's attention. And they changed. They integrated, they integrated the restaurants, soon the libraries would integrate. I mean, school, I mean, not schools wouldn't happen until a little later, but she was a force of change. So what I love about that story is, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know Wilma Rudolph won her gold medals, if we know her at all. But what people don't know is how she and so many others like were vocal, were insistent that things change. And you know, that's 60 years ago. That's you know, um. So when I, when I see Colin Kaepernick, when I see all these other contemporary athletes, they're like, they're standing on the shoulders of Wilma Rudolph, you know, and a bunch of other people. <laughs> um, right. Anyway, that's my, that's my, you know, stop the elevator button. I'm going to talk to you for five minutes. <laughs> we got stuck in the elevator, the elevator jammed <laughs> <laughs> and I got to learn about Wilma Rudolph and that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, yeah. yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, Okay, last question here. Uh, given your research regarding 20th century women's sport, can you share with us a tangible action that people listening to this right now can impl implement in their daily lives to create more of that change that we want to see? Yeah. Um, the first thing maybe is uh, not always easy, right? And that is when, when you see something, speak up. And that's hard sometimes as an individual because there's a lot, to, as I mentioned, a lot to risk, Right. But one of the things I think that history also shows us is that when you align yourself with others who think the same, boy, there's power in that. And I think that's what, when I look across the examples of women's sport history and beyond women's sport history, I think about the ways individuals created community and they created, they found allies. And, you know, there's, there's power in that. You know, I was, I was talking to, um, Wyoming Tyus recently who do you know her Wyoming Tyus no okay 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 not familiar um, I, I'm gonna need another hit me with the okay the elevator pitch uh Tyus was actually a, a teammate uh, of Wilma Rudolph uh, they went to the same school Tennessee State had a great track program historically black college by the way Tyus is the first human not the first woman the first human to win back-to-back -back gold medals in the 100 meter dash at the Olympics 
She won, she won her first in 64, she won her second in 1968. And one of the things that Tyus has always said um, is that you get your power from community. The more people you can get on the stage with you behind an issue, the, the better off. And so when she and other women were getting excluded from, uh, when black men were kind of, they excluded black women from the, the resistance movement in the 1968 Olympics, you know, Ruta, um, Tyus spoke out and said, he, this isn't, if you had, if women get involved, there's more of us. And if there's more of us, right. we're more powerful and our voices are louder, you know, as a, as a chorus, they're just louder. It's harder for people to ignore us when there are so many. So I think that would be like the, the big lesson, the big takeaway is speaking up individually, but also knowing we, who your friends are and making sure they join you in the fight. Right on. Well, I feel like uh, today I, I found another person in the fight, my friend Rita here. Thank you, Rita, for uh, speaking on uh, all your expertise and, you know, sharing some stories and some histories with us and tying it all to what we know today. So thank you again yeah. for um, being a part of the pod today. Yeah, thanks, Kristen. I really appreciate it. This podcast was brought to you by Skate Like a Girl and the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. It was produced by McKenna Duda, Kim Woozy, and Kristen Ebeling. The music is by Marby Miller. A big thank you to Dr. Matthew Atencio and Dr. Missy Wright for their support.